0: Okay, Mark chapter 8, I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up. Um, we're not going to be back in the book of Romans until February. And I know, you're brokenhearted over that. Um, let me tell you why. Um, the next four weeks, we're going to be focusing on Christmas and the build up to Christmas. And then the four weeks after Christmas, we're going to be doing a church-wide discipleship program. And it's actually something that we deliberately laid out back in the summertime. Rich Bruce has been working on putting together materials over the course of the fall. And for the entire church, we want to walk each other through the big picture story. In other words, from creation to redemption, what does it look like so that I understand the big picture of the biblical story? That'll be the four weeks of January. And then in February, we'll jump back into Romans again. But for this morning, we're in Mark chapter 8, and you'll see why it sets up communion really well this morning, but it also speaks into the next four weeks of where we're going for the Christmas story. And I want to pray with you first before we do that, so I'm going to ask you if you'd join me in prayer right now. Father, we turn our focus and our attention to your word, and we come in here with so many things on our mind and, and so many distractions. And thank you for using the worship music to prepare our hearts And now we pray that as our our hearts are open, our minds are ready to receive, that you would speak to us in truth, with clarity. And Father, where you need to encourage, I pray that you would do that. And where you need to bring conviction, God, do that. We invite that. And where you need to see response on our part, use your word, your ancient truth, Father. Guide us in that. We pray for that in Jesus' majestic name, amen. So when you come to Mark chapter 8, what you find is Jesus is on a road trip. He's traveling north when everybody else expected Him to go south. It's coming to the very end of His life, and He's begun a journey with the disciples. It confuses people because they think He should be going to the seat of power. They think He should be going towards Jerusalem, the capital city to begin the campaign of taking over. But instead, we find Mark 8.27 recording this, "'Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He questioned His disciples, saying to them, "'Who do people say that I am?'' Now, if anybody else in your life asks that question, you might think they're pretty arrogant, "'Who do people say that I am?' You'd like to get an opinion of what people think of you. We know that's not what Jesus is doing. He's trying to draw the disciples into a conversation. He wants to stimulate the discussion. So what's going on here? Well, here's the background of the material. Jesus, although at the height of his popularity in terms of people knowing who he is, he's actually declining in public opinion. Because of his power of miracles, because of the persona of his personality, people expect that he's going to take over the nation, that he will become the king, in other words, a political ruler. But he's not going towards the seat of power. He moves away and he goes north into a region that no one actually goes to if they're a good Jewish boy. They're going into Gentile territory. Caesarea Philippi is up in the northern part, 170 miles away from Jerusalem. Why would He go there? Well, He wanted some alone time with the disciples, first of all, but He has some teaching to do specifically to them. Now, You need to understand the background in this pagan culture that they're stepping into when it says Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is the area known as Panaeus, and if you're familiar with the term pantheism, or pagan ritual worship, that's where it happens at. That's actually the seedbed of it. When you hear the term gates of hell, pantheism started there in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea is named for Caesar. Philippi is named for the king Herod Philippi. And he took the city and he named it after himself, Caesarea Philippi, in order to honor Caesar and to honor Philip. If you ask the people of that region... Who do they think Caesar is? They would say, Caesar is Lord. But that confession would never save them from hell. They're confused. They don't understand what their convictions should be. They just know that as loyal Romans, they have to declare Caesar is Lord. The only confession that will save you from hell is that Jesus is Lord, and that's the one confession that if it comes from a believer's heart will save you, you're students of Romans though, you know that, you know Romans 10.9, right? Let me help you with Romans 10.9. Look with me up on the screen. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So Jesus is asking the one question that will silence a room, and if you think not, ask it at one of your Christmas parties this year. Ask who people think Jesus is. Who do people say that Jesus is? And the room will go quiet, I guarantee you. And Jesus is asking that question of those who belong to him, not because he's consumed with self-arrogance, but rather because he wants to raise the level of our thinking. He wants us to think big picture, and I'm asking you this question this morning. Who is Jesus to you? That's what we're going to examine over the next four weeks, the the names of that one, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor. Who is Jesus to you this morning, New Hope? Now, because the disciples responded in the way that they did, Jesus has another reaction for them, but watch their response first, verse 28. They told Him, saying, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets... Some say John, and that's a really creepy thought, because John's been dead for a year and a half, and he was beheaded. So what are they thinking's going on here? Like he's been reincarnated and he took over Jesus' body? Are they saying Jesus is the undead? Or, or in the case of Elijah? Why are they saying that? Well, because Jesus is really intense. See what's going on? Is They can't explain the miracles. People know He's incredibly powerful, but they can't explain what they're seeing, and so they're thinking, He's got to be part of the undead. He's got to be reincarnation of somebody. Something remarkable is going on here. They can't explain it. Now, if you've ever wondered about the personality of Jesus, read the insights that are going on in those statements. What do we know about John? Well, he was a firebrand. Man, that guy. He was just after the crowds. What do we know about Elijah? Well, he's very intense, especially passionate. Or one of the prophets, what do we know about the prophets? Very dedicated to the things of God. See, you're getting a first century imagery of Jesus' personality. That's what people think when they see Jesus. So in the first century, people see in Jesus the character of John and the fire and the intensity of Elijah. But all the speculations say one thing. They say he's a man because they don't know how to put together the God-man thought. Perhaps you've seen Napoleon speak about this before, but in 1815, Napoleon Bonaparte spoke about Jesus, and I want you to see his quote. Look with me up on the screen. I know men, and Jesus was no mere man. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires, but upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions will die for him. I tell you, these, all these were men. Jesus Christ was more than man. So Jesus takes the question to a whole new level. His response is verse 29. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question everyone has to face, right, New Hope? Everybody has to do something with that. Who is Jesus to you? How would you fill in the blank this morning? To me, Jesus is... Is He a historical figure? Just a miracle worker? Or do you see Him the way that the disciples declare Him to be? Who is Jesus to you? If you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you've heard me give a definition of faith. It's my favorite definition of faith. It's actually a biblical principle, and I want you to see the definition. It's in your notes this morning, but you'll also see it on the screen. Here's a good way to define faith. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. Remember that the rest of your life. That's what faith really is. I'm responding to what God has revealed. Faith is my response to what God reveals. So if that's true, if faith is my response to what God has revealed, what do you do with what God has revealed in Jesus? That's essentially what He's asking the disciples to declare. It's the very issue that they're confronting. How do I respond to what God has revealed? And Jesus himself is calling them out on it. So I'm asking you this morning, is Jesus just a historical figure? Or is he more than that? The NIV, if you happen to have a translation of the New International Version, actually captures the Greek statement really well here. There's a nuance in the way that Jesus states it. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? See, he uses the word you twice. What about you? makes it very personal. Who do you say that I am? Watch Peter's response, verse 30. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ, the Mashiach. Whether or not you know the Greek language, it doesn't matter. You recognize the name Christ, which is an English version of the word Christos. Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. You are the anointed one. You are the promised one. You're the one that we've been watching and waiting for. I don't know if you've ever noticed, maybe you've read this a hundred times, but have you ever noticed that Jesus is not asking Peter specifically? But he's the one who's willing to step further out on the limb than anybody else. He looks like the spokesman for the other 12, and he's willing to say what everybody else has on their mind, apparently among the 12. Matthew goes even a step further when he records this. Matthew writes down that that's not all that Peter said. Matthew 16 says this, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, there's a God moment, church. There's no speculation there, is there? There's no street talk. There's nobody saying, He's just a man. He's just a historical figure. He's like Elijah. He's like John. No, Peter's gone way out there. He says, this is specifically who you are. You are the son of the living God. You are infinitely above all. There is no higher position. So what Peter has just done is he's responded to the revelation that God has made available. And that's why I'm asking you this question. How do you respond to what God has revealed? Peter's responded in that moment to what God revealed. This is why this is really significant. In Peter's culture and in your culture today in 2018, because culture has defined Jesus one way. Pop culture in Peter's lifetime in the first century is predisposed to say he's just a forerunner. He's just a man. And no one can overcome that thinking on their own. According to God's Word, you need God to reveal to you who Jesus is. So Jesus responds to Peter saying this, God bless you, Peter, because pop culture didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven did. This is the way Jesus actually said it. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, that means son of John, Bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... In other words, that's not a conclusion you came to in your human capacity. So New Hope this morning, if you're getting ready in your mind to lift the cup this morning and lift the bread because you're going to participate in communion, and you do that because you recognize who Jesus is, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but the Father in heaven. God has revealed to you who Jesus is. Can you say praise the Lord about that? Say amen. That's, that's God at work, and I meet so many believers who say, how come I don't ever see God at work in my life? I'd love to see God at work in my life. That's God at work in your life. That's the very first stage that God has revealed to you who Jesus is, and it's the Holy Spirit who opened your eyes. So praise God, you've had a supernatural work of God in your life. Jesus declared that to Peter Himself. So notice as the conversation goes on that Jesus actually accepts the declaration. He doesn't correct Peter and say, Peter, I'm sorry, you got that wrong. That's not who I am. He actually accepts it, and then he turns the conversation. Go with me to verse 30. And he warned them to tell no one about him. See, because the culture at that time has a huge misconception, and Jesus has to go deeper and talk of really hard truth with those who belong to Him. So go back with me to verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He began to teach, the word is didasko, didasko is what a rabbi would do with his students when they would begin to explain what we call the Old Testament, God's Word to the students. So obviously Jesus is opening God's Word to them, and He's teaching them that this has to happen. And it suggests that the teaching is new in this way. It's not that He's not said something like this previously, but it's been so obscure. He said things like, the Son of Man must be in the heart of the earth three days, or destroy this body and I will rise it up. Raise it up. Those things are really confusing, but watch verse 32, Part B or part A, and he was stating the matter plainly. In other words, Jesus was really blunt with them. There's no confusion whatsoever. But what I want to focus in on is the Greek word D-E-I or D-I-E how I pronounce it. This particular word is the word "must." And Jesus has used it several times here. There's something that has to happen, men, His followers that are gathered around Him. The must is not some human commitment. It's not like saying, I must order a pizza from Domino's tonight. That's not the kind of must He's talking about. This is an imperative. It's an absolute. It has to happen because there's no alternate plan. Watch how John MacArthur wrote about this. He said, this must came thundering out of eternity. The essential, unalterable plan of God. I don't know if you've ever written these down before, maybe you've noted it in your own Bible, but there's four musts that are being stated here, and I want you to see them. I'm going to put them on the screen for you. First of all, there's the must, that He must suffer many things. And then there's the second one, He must be rejected. And then there's this third one, He must be killed. But those are all purposeful because of the fourth one, church, because the fourth one is a must of victory, and he must rise again. He says, it has to happen. I must be rejected. I must die. I must suffer, but I must rise again. Can you imagine the incredible distress if this is one of your closest friends, and you're hearing what he's going to go through? What's that going to do to your heart? Picture in your mind right now somebody who's really close to you who says, I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to have my beard ripped out. They're going to beat me with a cat of nine tails. They're going to reject me. And ultimately, I have to be killed. He's very plain with them and very specific. But he says, I must rise again. And if you don't know the rest of the story, it's going to be really distressful to hear that. Yet, church, it's the truth of the fourth must that makes all the other must purposeful because the fourth must is the must of victory. Now, Peter makes it clear. He heard Jesus, and he heard Jesus really, really clearly. But he's stuck on the first three. The fourth one doesn't really register with him how, how can a dead Messiah, how can he rescue his people? I can't put that together in my mind. Well, he can't. A dead Messiah can't rescue his people. That's why he must rise again. But Peter's stuck on the first three. So we're told that he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And I, I, I think there's some of this going on. Hey, hey I just told all the other guys I just said publicly, you're the Mashiach? What are you talking about? You can't speak like this. Verse 32, part B. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I wonder if you've ever rebuked God. You only do it once. I know because I've done it. (laughs) And you remember it. Have you ever rebuked? God, because you didn't understand what's going on. Mark uses the exact same word here that was used of Jesus when Jesus rebuked the demons in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus told them where to go, what they were supposed to do. It's this particular Greek word, it's the last one you're going to see, epitamao, and it actually has this meaning to admonish someone, but here's the way that it was used in the first century. See, the rebuke has the idea of authority over people. It was used of an individual who was a governing authority, who's speaking with jurisdiction power over those who were subjective to him. That's the way Peter's speaking to Jesus. And we're told in the Greek language it's done in the present infinitive, which means he did it over and over and over again. Why would Peter talk like that? Well, because he's part of culture, and culture has influenced him, and culture has a concept about the things of God, which are a total contradiction to who Jesus says he is. And because what Jesus has just said is so utterly contrary to what Peter pictures in his mind about God, the plain speaking is too much for him. And it causes you to think of Isaiah 55, 8, where God said, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Peter's not able to deal with this, so he just declared, You're the Son of the living God, and now he's acting like, God, Your plans don't match with my plans. They don't fit it. Now, check yourself on this, lest we make this just about Peter. Peter is acting in a way in which he's placing his personal goals above God's goals. Anybody here identify with that? The a temptation to do that, isn't there, church? See, here's what I need to be quick to recognize. It is all too easy to put on Peter's sandals. Everything's great when God's doing things the way that we think He should be doing them, but what about when God does things other than the way we expect Him to do them? Where do we go with that? See, it's really a lordship issue. And so Jesus has to speak to them about this very issue. So I'm tracking with a story by saying this. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord... It's one thing to say, I recognize you, I identify with you, but it's another thing entirely to surrender to his plans. Go with me to the next verse, 30, 33, part A. But turning around and seeing his disciples, question right there Do you think God sighs? I think this is a God sighing moment. It's like, oh. turning around. And seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Do you think Jesus said that gently? Among the things I never want to hear Jesus say to me, (laughs) that's at the top of the list, right? I bet you can identify with that. (laughs) Okay. I don't ever want to go there. Keep me from that. See, here's why the rebuke is so severe. And interestingly, it's the exact same way that Peter just spoke to him, only Jesus does it with utter authority. The severity of the rebuke is because there is an intent there to keep Jesus from the cross. So one minute Peter's a rock, and the next minute he's a block. That's exactly what Matthew wrote. Matthew recorded, Jesus said something more, Matthew 16, 23, but He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. I'm confident, and unless Jesus corrects me one day in eternity, I'll continue to believe this until He corrects me. I am confident that Jesus is looking Peter directly in the eye in this moment. And it's hard to imagine anything more severe and shocking being said to you by Jesus. Get behind me, you are a scandal on to me. Stumbling block is the word scandalon in the Greek language. And a scandalon is a bait trap. You, you've trapped mice, perhaps, or maybe you've done trapping on a trap line, or you've trapped animals live, maybe you had a squirrel you wanted to get out of your yard. Well, a scandalon is the plate in the middle of the trap which you place the bait on. Get behind me, Peter, Satan. You are a scandal on to me. It's where we get the English word scandal. You are a bait trap to me. You're trying to distract me from God's purposes. So, Satan is using Peter to set a trap for Jesus, and Peter is a believer. And when believers insist on their own way over God's way, we become a distraction to God's purposes, actually intervening, interfering with God's actions. And Jesus actually tells him how this is happening and why. Finish the verse out, part B. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And I have to ask myself, church, can I do that? Am I capable of that too? I'm no better than Peter. Could I try and distract God from the things that he has to do? Now, at the surface, it seems incredibly compassionate. It's like, wow, Peter just doesn't want his friend to die. I get that. But he's not thinking of the bigger picture here. He can't bear the thought of Jesus' suffering. But here's the truth. Satan knows you. He knows our weaknesses. He studies us. In this case, Peter's weakness is he can't bear the thought of Jesus' suffering, so he places a thought in Peter's mind. God asks too much, Peter. It's far, far too much. You need to intervene in this. A Christ follower who proclaims Jesus a Savior but struggles to let Him be Lord. If this can happen to Peter, can it happen to any believer? Absolutely. So when we follow our own desires, our own selfish desires, The same one who can find themselves on the side of God can find themselves unwittingly taking the side of Satan. So God has just given Peter incredible clarity on who Jesus is. God bless you, Peter. My Father in heaven revealed this to you, and Satan follows with a counterattack immediately. Does that sound like spiritual warfare to you? Absolutely. It's what it is. In the moment that you experience your greatest spiritual victories, you find Satan following it right up and you're encountering spiritual harassment. So Satan attempts to use a future leader of the church to take Jesus out to oppose the very work of God. So we get a really important lesson this morning right from Jesus himself. God's way when it comes to salvation, if you're new to church, you really need to hear this. God's way does not resemble man's way. Especially when it comes to the issue of salvation. Because God's kind of Messiah is not man's kind of Messiah. And the person who insists on coming to God on their own terms finds themselves opposing God. God says, there's only one way to Me, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus had to clarify these things and this is where He finishes the story, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. I love the part, the way that's written. It's not as though he told the disciples to go stick their nose in the corner. You guys really messed this up. You go stand over there for some alone time. I'm going to talk to the rest of the group. No, he's not doing that. He summons the crowd along with the disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So he's talking about a lordship issue. What does that actually fully look like? Well, to deny yourself is actually the dominant element in your life. Yourself is the dominant issue. And it's placing the will of God over the will of man no matter what. Even if you're new to church, you probably heard the Lord's Prayer at some point. The disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? Will you teach us? When you pray, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. How many times do I pray for my will to be done and not God's will? This is the issue Jesus is talking about here. Now, the self that he's referring to is not your personal identity. You are an individual personal identity. You have that. You are not a robot. Jesus doesn't want robots. The self that he's speaking of is the self of the natural rebellion that's within you. Look with me on the screen, Ephesians 4.24. Put on the new self which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So he ends with this really powerful thought. You've got to take up your cross. Now historically... When somebody living in the Roman Empire is being told to pick up their cross, they're talking about the horizontal beam on the top of a cross, not the vertical, but the horizontal that was attached to the vertical, and they've got to lay that timber across their shoulders, and they begin a death march. So they're dragging that timber, and the Romans have sentenced them to death, and they're making their way to the place of execution. And that's a condemned criminal, a person who has to give up everything because they've been condemned and they're carrying the very beam on which they're going to hang. Jesus pulls that imagery together for them and He says, if you're going to be a follower of Mine, you've got to begin a death march. Now, Jesus died for you already. You don't need to die for your salvation. So he's not talking about you dying for your salvation. He's obviously talking about the life of a believer here. He's not telling them how to be saved, but what it looks like when you're living a saved life. That's why Paul said, I die daily. I die to my old self, putting my old self aside. So he clarifies now to end this, the actions of a true believer. Verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Finish it out, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's get this really clear so we understand his meaning here. What's the opposite of being ashamed of someone? To be proud, right? If I'm not ashamed of someone, I must be proud of them. So so Jesus is talking about the opposite of being ashamed. He's saying, you've got to be proud of me. I'm not embarrassed by Jesus. I'm not embarrassed to be identified with him. So Jesus is saying this, if you are embarrassed by me, And the price that I paid? And hear this. We're not talking about a lack of courage on your part to witness about your faith every time you get the chance. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a settled frame of mind. Someone who has looked at Jesus and has concluded, are you kidding me? You believe that? What a joke. You think there's a God? You you think that you're not going to get into wherever that place of paradise is one day? How could you believe that stuff? To See, Jesus is talking about somebody who's arrived at a settled framework of mind. He says, if you view me that way, that's the way I'm going to view you when I come again. And you're going to perish with the rest of the people who think I'm a joke. So he says, what are you going to do then? What are you going to do when what God has revealed as the way of salvation has been rejected by you. How are you going to pay for your soul then? There's no ransom possible at that point. No further commentary needed from me, that's scary enough in itself. So why link Peter's response with what he just said? Faith is my response to what God has revealed. You've been looking at this since the beginning. Read it again. They're going to put it on the screen for you. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. Has God revealed who Jesus is? He absolutely has. And God knows our world. He knows the first century and He knows 2018. He knows what it looks like to have an adulterous generation, a sinful generation. And if you're going to put that in biblical context, what he's saying, an adulterous generation is someone who's looked at it, they understood what they're supposed to be committed to, but they choose something else and they chase after that thing. That's what adultery is in its form. God knows it's impossible to bring God into the midst of an anti-God society without there being hostility. So anyone who desires to live godly in this world, according to Scripture, is going to meet with conflict because when holiness meets unholiness, inevitably there's going to be a violent reaction. See, that makes this so significant for Christmas time, church. We've got these four weeks ahead of us in which the world actually takes an opinion about where this celebration came from. What is this Christmas thing all about? And I'm asking you this morning, do you, do you have a resolve in your mind about who Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Because when you know that you know that you know who He is as the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, you're going to respond differently than what the world would respond with. So if you're new to church, you've never heard this stuff before, this is not only a call to salvation for you. You've got to do something with Jesus now, especially if this is the first time you've heard this. But for those who are believers, those who are going to lift the cup and lift the bread this morning, this is a call to surrender for you. I want you to think about how we do communion here at New Hope. Paul writes to people with the exact same issue that you're facing this morning. Remember how 1 Corinthians chapter 11 starts out? For I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that in the night that the Lord Jesus was, what church? Betrayed. Betrayed. Judas laid a trap for Jesus. A scandalon was put out there. He was treating Jesus as a joke. Someone to be baited in. So even in the midst of his 12, he's got the scandal on still there at the end of his life. And Jesus says, are you going to be serious about me or am I a joke? Believers have to ask themselves this question when they come to the communion passage. Have you been holding back? Because Paul ends the communion passage with this thought. Whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup must examine themselves. He's writing about a really serious issue to the Corinthian church because they're showing up for communion and they're getting drunk. It's a party time for them. They weren't taking seriously what Jesus had done. The very thing that he gave us to remember, the price that was paid, the, the four must that we talked about here. So I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to read the passage to you like we typically do here at New Hope. I'm going to ask you to take this time right now and evaluate yourself. Where are you at in your walk? This isn't meant to keep you from taking communion. It's meant to examine yourself as you do take it. So I'm going to ask you to do that before the Father right now. Examine yourself. And if you're a believer in Jesus, we really do encourage you. Participate in the elements this morning. But take this time right now to talk to the Father. Pick up the elements, take them back to your seat. And then I'll talk you through the rest. Father, we consume these things because of the instruction specifically from your word. That it's a living witness and a testimony that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're willing to witness to that. We pray that our witness would be just as bold tomorrow as it is today standing in this auditorium. Because of the name of the one, the one who redeemed us is worthy of the stand that we take. So we pray for that strength in the matchless name of Jesus, our redeeming king. And all God's people said, amen. amen.